So with us today is Professor of British Imperialism and Colonial History, Andrikos Varnava from Flinders University in Adelaide, Australia. He has authored a number of monographs, including British Cyprus in the Long Great War and British Imperialism in Cyprus, in addition to having edited 14 collections such as Comic Empires, The Imperialism of Cartoons, Caricature, and Satirical Art, and most recently, Exiting War, The British Empire, and 1918-1930 to Moment. For today, he's been so very kind to talk to us about British Cyprus in the late 19th century and its emergence as a British protectorate in 1878. Andrikos, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. All right. So I want to start off, you know, in preparing for this, I read your book, British Imperialism in Cyprus, and it was a really awesome read. Really enjoyed it, especially since this is probably one of the historical periods that I personally am a little bit um, gray in, so to speak. One of the things that first captured my attention is that you actually write that Cyprus's occupation in 1878 by the British Empire cannot be understood without understanding its place within the British imperial imagination. So can you explain how Cyprus was viewed through that imperial lens that you speak of? Yes, absolutely. The pure imagination refers, I suppose, to imperialists who uh, get excited about expansion, um, whether it's British Empire or, or, I don't know, French Empire or otherwise, and they begin to form this idealistic, idealized views of certain places based on a sort of selective and in sometimes mis- completely misinformed understanding of the history of that place and that they, as, you know, the mighty superior imperialists, they can recreate those places once again, um, even, even though, you know, they exaggerate that past. And in the case of Cyprus, this imperial lens basically refers to the fact that they 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 didn't really do any research was into the occupation of Cyprus. Nobody went there to provide a first-hand study or, or of of what the place was like. Um, they wanted it as a, a naval base and as a army base. Yet their experts recommended a completely different. Uh, island in the Aegean, um, but the powers that be, so to speak, went went against that, and basically they understood Cyprus uh, as having been once upon a time, particularly in medieval times, as a flowering, growing center for trade, and they thought, well, we can recreate that again. So this was a very much romanticized perception of Cyprus. Um, I recall reading something along the lines of the beauty of the orange blossoms, the sea breeze, very much rooted in this perception that I think as I, as I read your book, wasn't really reflect, reflecting reality, which uh, I think we're going to circle back to in a moment. Yes. Were most, most of these perceptions rooted in the medieval era or did they think back to antiquity as well? They did have... You know, a thing for Aphrodite as well. Uh, they, they there was there were constant references to Aphrodite, um, particularly in uh, the newspapers. You know, the hard-nosed British politicians and their advisors particularly looked back to the medieval period 
and referred to when Cyprus was, you know, once upon a time, the place where Richard the Lionheart had married Berengaria, uh, had used Cyprus as a base for the Crusades, and, and then subsequently became a Crusader kingdom and was a, the center for economic activity in that part of the world. And, and there was, that was a strong current um, in British, particularly Tory imperialism, to expand British trade and control economic activities in, in the Eastern Mediterranean. So if we go back to the late 19th century, I'm going to throw out some names here that I think many people might not be familiar with, uh, starting off with Sultan Abdul Hamid, who ceded the administration of Cyprus to Britain in 1878. First, a couple questions. I mean, Abdul Hamid, uh, who is he? And what was and what precipitated the so-called Cyprus Convention that sort of formalized this handover? Well, Sultan Abdul Hamid was a very conservative reactionary sultan. He had only recently come to power uh, basically uh, as a reactionary to not introduce a more progressive, if we can say that, constitution. Uh, He comes to power and, and basically he's pretty quickly confronted with a war against Russia, which doesn't go very well at all for the Ottomans. And there's, you know, they're accused of orchestrating massacres in Bulgaria, the so-called Bulgarian horrors. And basically he he's reliant upon the British because they, uh, the government in Britain, led by Lord Beaconsfield or Benjamin Disraeli, a conservative, essentially wants to try to support the Ottoman Empire. There are differences of opinion in his government. However, broadly, it wants to support the Ottoman Empire because it believes that that's the best way of preserving British interests in that part of the world, interests that are pretty strong and growing in Egypt, but also they they feel that the best way of protecting them is is to cultivate even more their interests and influence in the Ottoman Empire. So basically, the Sultan, faced with having lost the, Ru- the war with Russia and faced with a very harsh treaty, the Treaty of San Stefano, that the Russians want to impose, finds himself reluctantly only having really one ally, an ally that's not prepared to go to war at that point in time. British Foreign Secretary, just before this, Lord Darby, resigns after uh, Disraeli and the Secretary of State for India, Lord Salisbury, proposed to um, essentially proposed to occupy Cyprus by force of arms. And so he resigns, <coughs> Lord Darby, and then Lord Salisbury takes over as foreign secretary. And it's this coming together of Disraeli and Lord Salisbury that brings about the uh, Anglo-Turkish Convention or the Cyprus Convention. And Salisbury, I should say, was actually not particularly keen on backing this, the Ottoman Empire. He would have been, gladly partitioned it with Russia, but this wasn't Disraeli's position. So they compromised. So Salisbury got part of what he wanted, was, which was the right to occupy and administer Cyprus for the British. And Disraeli got what he wanted, which was a pledge to support the Ottomans if Russia threatened them again. And this was a deal that the Sultan could not really refuse. Now this this um, this 
deal. What did Great Britain think they were getting out of Cyprus? Well, the draw to Cyprus. So the draw to Cyprus was that they wanted to establish a naval and army base. They wanted to have troops there that they could very quickly um, send onto the Ottoman mainland in, in, in the event of a Russian Russian expedition um, against the Ottomans. So they wanted to be close to the vicinity there. So that was the main point, but it became a bit mixed up and complicated by the addition of other uh, things that they also wanted. So they wanted the place to be large enough to be economically viable, but not just viable. They wanted to also uh, ensure that the Sultan was not economically disadvantaged. So they promised that they would pay over from Cypriot revenues um, a so-called tribute. So this was one reason why they ruled out the island recommended by the Navy um, in the Aegean, because that island was, was for them, was too small from an economic point of view to generate that revenue, even though it had a far superior deep water harbour, in fact, two of them. And a third reason for them was that they wanted to be administering a place that was not going to cause them problems because they wanted to show the Ottomans how to rule over a mixed race population. And they considered Crete uh, and ruled it out because of the fact that there had been differences between Christian and Muslim uh, communities there, whereas in Cyprus they had, they had there wasn't anything like that. There was no evidence of that. And they based a lot of what I'm saying, a lot of, you know, around these three reasons, I suppose, around what consuls had written about Cyprus, British consuls had written about Cyprus from the 1840s and 50s and 60s and 70s, which they had access to in the Foreign Office. So they, they I mean, they had some evidence, but the evidence was also exaggerated because the consuls are inflating, for example, how simple it would be. To, to convert Cyprus into a naval and army base. So this wasn't a um, permanent takeover. This was, um, for a lack of a better word, this was a lease. It, it, it sort of reads that way. Basically, it, it was the right to occupy and administer Cyprus, and, but Cyprus would remain under Ottoman sovereignty. However, the only clause in which the British would need to adhere to to give it back was if the Russians were to return the three cities, I think it was, that they took, uh, Ardahan, Batum, and Kars, uh, as part of you know, the broader Treaty of Berlin. So, I mean, the British were very interesting in the sense that they would often refer to the temporary nature of the occupation and administration, but but never really looked like giving Cyprus up, even, if it, even though it did become a, a backwater and an inconsequential possession. And and it wasn't until, you know, just prior to World War One that they begin to think about, well, maybe Cyprus could be given up for something better or for, for a better deal. And event, without getting too far ahead, yes, uh, eventually it would be superseded by the Treaty of Lausanne, if, if I'm not mistaken. That would that would yes. change whatever whatever yes. agreement they had. Yes, it did. And, well, Cyprus was annexed in 1914 when the Ottomans joined the Central Powers. Uh, so that order superseded the Cyprus Convention. But then, as you say, the Treaty of Lausanne uh, officially replaced it because 
all parties became in, were in agreement uh, that Cyprus would be recognized, that uh, Cyprus would remain British. Okay, so in, in chapter five of your book, uh, Sublime Illusions, the Mediterranean Eldorado, you write, and I'm reading a quote here, the British encounter with Cyprus came as a huge shock because of the appearance. It did not resemble the classical, biblical, and medieval version they had come to know so well. So a couple of questions. Actually, I'll start off with one, just not to overwhelm you here. How did they receive Cypriots who, no doubt, uh, didn't resemble their classical perceptions of them? And what did they find when they arrived in Cyprus? Well, I'll take the second part of that question first. So when they arrived, they they arrived at Larnaca. The ships arrived at Larnaca with, with the troops. Uh, and the troops also included a very substantial number of troops from the subcontinent, which was the first time that they had left the subcontinent. And they could not, they had to remain out at sea and small, you know, boats had to uh, bring them on ashore. Their first impressions were, you know, one of, I suppose, disappointment. The place was, had lacked infrastructure, lacked development, um, particularly lacked even the basic uh, roads that they needed. Uh, they were also confronted by the very strong Cypriot summer, which I suppose, fair to say, resembles more Middle Eastern type conditions, very stifling heat. In connection with, I suppose, you know, they camped, they camped as well, very flimsy tents, uh, which didn't really prevent the sun from penetrating them. And they also made errors in where they pitched these tents very close to built um, stagnant waters, marshes, which uh, contain, uh, which, you know, can spread disease, and it did. So we, they be, basically they begin to suffer from heat stroke, malaria becomes rampant, um, and they are not in a good place. I mean, deaths are occurring as a result. Uh, as for the Cypriots, they were quite taken aback by... Uh, the fact that Cyprus essentially, in their eyes, looked not at all European in its appearance and the people themselves. They had assumed that, you know, they those who knew Greek, and, and at the beginning not a great many of the British did, but those that did couldn't really communicate with the Greek of Cyprus. They also were taken aback by the church and the church leadership uh, although they welcomed them pretty much with, with open arms, they were also confronted by the church essentially wanting the British to merely step in and replace the Ottomans who had elevated the church to a position of authority and power. And the British weren't prepared to do that. They, they weren't, even, even under the initial control of Cyprus by the Foreign Office, they were trying to keep the church at arm's length. Um, how did the Cypriots in general receive the British? So, for example, what was their expectation for the average Cypriot? Did they also hope to be co-opted into the systems of government governance, so to speak? Well, the majority of the population were peasants and rural laborers. They probably would have received the change with a shrug of their shoulders, um, I would imagine, but perhaps with some hopes that, you know, in their in their minds, if they understood 
how the you know European powers and how the British were perceived as you know liberal Britain, even though we have a conservative government, nevertheless liberal Britain potentially they might have thought that this might result in some better better days for them. I mean the Ottomans were quite a paternalistic you know governing system, and they would come to the aid of peasants if things were going wrong you know, in terms of harvests and so forth. They were quite paternalistic. The British weren't so paternalistic. They were more, you know, let it let it happen, let it and it'll sort itself out, let the markets still do what they do and so forth. I think the Cypriots were quite surprised by that as time went on. However, they were also hoping probably for change in the judiciary, something that the Archbishop at the time, Sophronius, one of the things he clearly says is that, you know, we welcome the British and he hoped for changes in the judiciary to bring about um, equality in terms of the judiciary for both Christians and Muslims, Um, whereas under the Ottomans, a Christian could not testify against a Muslim in court. Uh, that, that, That was something that they wanted to see changed and it did change. This, this is sounding increasingly like a massive miscalculation. Um, so who who didn't do their homework, essentially? Is, is Does the blame fall squarely on the shoulders of Disraeli? Yeah, absolutely. And Lord Salisbury as well. I mean, they were the basically the architects. They were the ones in power making this, these decisions. They overlooked or ignored the advice from their naval advisors about um, Stampalia in the Aegean as the most suitable to have a naval base, and they decided on on Cyprus. I should point out that, you know, Disraeli himself wrote, before became a politician, and while he was a politician, wrote novels. Uh, they, weren't, they weren't, you know, they're not that great, not, you know, they're okay, but at the time they, they, were, rel- they were, you know, moderately popular. And one of them, Tancred or the Last Crusade, basically makes references to the British. Um, you know, if they have to come to the aid of the uh, Ottomans again, they basically, uh, because they aided the Ottomans in 1840 during the Syrian campaign, and there were sort of rumours at the time that the British would ask for Cyprus in return for that help. And Disraeli refers to this in the book. And he goes, if they do, if they, if we have to come to their aid again, we'll ask for Cyprus. So I mean, he he sort of brought that to reality when he uh, in 1878 when he was in power. But absolutely, the the basically the buck stops with them. Mm-hmm. You know, we started off talking about um, Aphrodite a little bit in the public yeah. in the in the British imagination, and if anyone ever gets a chance to to look into these very famous series of of cartoons i suppose we'd call them political cartoons the punch cartoons one of the most famous ones that i can think of just top of my head is is one of sir garnet uh wolseley who we'll we'll talk about in a moment courting aphrodite and he's giving her a kiss on the hand and you wrote punch cartoons knew the irony of using the classical past to justify the imperial acquisition of the present and we also know that the while the conservative government was more or less in favor for what was going on in Cyprus, it wasn't received as positively by the liberal opposition in parliament. 
So That's right. with all these things said, I'm, I'm curious, how did the public digest this information? How, were they getting the whole story? Was it really known that this was disastrous? Yes. They were, yes. I mean, very quickly, very soon after the British arrived, um, they there is an influx of interest and journalists are go, have gone there and are reporting back. And we have also the uh, images in the London Illustrated News and the graphic as well. Uh, I mean, they, they go there because they're going to make, basically, they're going to do two things. One is follow the troops. So there's quite a lot of images of the troops, but also they're going to, uh, they want to give a projection of, you know, what this place looks like, because basically people don't really know much about it. For example, you, you, you mentioned the punch cartoons. There's a, there's a little known cartoon of a, a boy and a girl, and the boy's been given homework, uh, and that is to do research of Cyprus, and he quips, you know, this comes of the Israeli occupying Cyprus, and basically not knowing much about it. So uh, they've got him doing some homework on it type thing. So basically these reports get published in the newspapers. There is a very quick, I suppose, movement towards seeing the place as and the decision as a disaster. And the liberals have a lot to do with it. They, they're critical of the policy right from the very beginning. I mean, they, they are critical of it because, firstly, there is a liberal line of critique of empire where they don't see any immediate or even long-term uh, advantage, and they immediately saw that this wasn't a good uh, idea. Um, but, but this was, of course, being evidenced by, you know, how the troops were getting along the fact that the place didn't have a ready harbour, the fact that it didn't have any roads that they could use, the conditions, the wet, the climate. You know, they didn't need to do a lot to show that this was a bad deal and the public were beginning to turn uh, against it. Let's, let's talk about Sir Garnet Wolseley, who was yes. appointed as Cyprus's first high commissioner. And... Um, he, his journal, uh, it's published and, and anyone can pick it up. It's called Cyprus 1878, the Journal of Sir Garnet Wolseley. And I've read his journal, very interesting, paints uh, quite the unflattering picture of Cyprus. So, I mean, that's to put it kindly. I'm going to read an excerpt and uh, I hope everyone listening enjoys this. It says, Sunday, August 1878, went to the monastery church to attend a great function in honor of hoisting the English flag upon it. First, we had mass, such a mockery of everything sacred, dirty, greasy priests attempting to intone some dreary dirges that were utterly devoid of music or melody. Many of the Greek priests cannot read or write, which the archbishop explained to me was the reason why no register of births or deaths or marriages was kept. After the mass, which was very long, some of the congregation advanced to the screen, which hides the altar, and kissed the pictures of the Virgin and some ugly-looking saints. The priests never cut their hair, and whilst Mass was going on, all wore it hanging down their backs. All part their hair down the center, which, when this hair is as long as a woman's, gives a nasty, effeminate look to them, which is not agreeable. Officiating fellows wore a sort of old and dirty-looking dressing gown of some brocaded stuff. 
And when the elements were brought out, the bread, I suppose, or wafer, for I don't know which they use, was carried in a silver dish like a muffin dish and was carried aloft by the priest with both arms above his head on which it rested. So it sounds not very nice, (laughs) but put it kindly. The way he's describing communion, the fact that he's saying he doesn't know whether it's leavened or not, it seems like he's not even really paying much attention because you could really clearly see that it's not a wafer, which I think is very really um, revealing about sort of his disposition towards Cyprus. So I guess my question is, what was his perception of Cypriots? How how did he view this whole crusade? Well, let me just say that the extract you read, I mean, he's pretty disrespectful um, I think that's the best way of putting it. And also, I mean, he's he's paying attention to some things but not other things. So he's paid attention to their appearance. So clearly he has this superficial superficiality because he describes their hair and so and their dress very uh, in a detailed way. Uh, but then he doesn't observe, you know, whether it's leavened or unleavened bread, which which is interesting. And let me also point out that the front cover of the book has a has a has a picture of the raising of the British flag, and you can see there the 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 throne that you know usually an, an archbishop or a bishop would sit. Uh, obviously, that throne would be inside the church, but they've taken it outside where they're where they want where they're raising the flag, and and that was for him to sit in. That was for Wolseley to sit in, but he refused to sit in it. And then you've got another per, another British officer just leaning on it. Right, I can picture story. the I can picture it exactly the way you're describing yeah. it. That's exactly right. Yeah, and I mean it just totally matches with the extract and his views of of Cyprus. I mean, basically, Wolseley accepted the position because he thought Cyprus was going to be the next big thing. I mean, it was the talk of the town, um, and you know he was the most significant military figure of that time. He had around him a group of men known as the Wolseley Ring, and he appointed many of them to positions in Cyprus. Uh, His successor, because as you pointed out, Wolseley didn't really last very long in Cyprus, about a year, and that was enough time for him to realize this place isn't going to, it's not going to happen. What what was envisaged, it's not going to happen. So he moved on, but his successor was one of his friends, uh, Sir Robert Bidolf, was part of the Worsley ring. I mean, for Worsley, it was a disaster. It really was. I mean, everything just went from bad to worse. The place, as I mentioned, was nothing, uh, was not even remotely close to what they expected. And what they realized was that they, they would need years and a lot of money to redevelop it to, some, to, to, to make it useful for their purposes. As I said earlier, many many of his officers became uh, quite ill. Uh, one of them was known as the ghost of Farmagusta. That's how bad the malaria got to him. And basically, I mean, one of the decisions very early on, for example, was that they realized that it was too hot uh, in the summer and they would need a hill station. So, you know, hill stations in India were very common. They also knew that Farmagusta was the only place that they could um, create a, a, a deep water harbour that was protected. Now, there were hills just north of Farmagusta or just north of the harbour, 
But they ignored those hills for a hill station, which would have been the logical choice because they would, would, wouldn't have had to have marched very far to get harbour. Instead, they chose Trudos, which, of course, <clears throat> has a more sort of famous and romanticised past as well and, and is higher, um, can snow up there. So they picked Trudos for their hill station and built a road from where they decided that the troops would be in, in the uh, winter months, which was near Limassol. But Limassol could never be the, the harbour for them. So they very quickly made decisions that were that contradicted their their purpose for being there. It's pretty clear. I mean, he only lasted a year. Um, so definitely by 1880, they they're they're realizing the situation they're in. Yes. It appears they couldn't afford or perhaps wouldn't commit to restoring the yes. harbor in Famagusta. We got mosquitoes, yes. malaria, smallpox, yes. typhoid. I mean, yes. why did they still want to stay in Cyprus? Like, <laughs> I mean, what? Why not cut their losses at this point? Well, that's because they would have had to admit, admit that they were very badly wrong and that would have really fed into the Liberal Party's narrative and position moving into the 1980 election. Um, and, and indeed, it would have also more broadly spoken to the fact that not only did they make a rash decision, but that, imp that imperialism somehow, in this instance, engenders such rash decisions. And yeah, indeed, they, they, they did do a study of Famagusta Harbour. Uh, it was done by a guy called Samuel, Samuel Brown, who had um, constructed the breakwater at, Ale at Alexandria. And, and actually, the breakwater of Alexandria, they used stones. I don't know if you know this. They used stones from old Famagusta, from the you know, fortifications. What, they took uh, them up, up, up yes. to Egypt. Yes. So Samuel Brown, I mean, he may, he may or may not have known Famagusta before he went there, um, uh, just after the British occupation. But anyway, he, he ended up in Cyprus for a number of years. But initially, he went there to do a study of the harbour. And he suggested uh, a stage by stage redevelopment. And if I recall, the first stage would involve dredging the harbour, which simply means to remove the sand through the use of a machine called a dredger. And to make some, you know, moderate modifications as a first stage, and that would cost fifty thousand pounds. But in eighteen seventy nine, with everything that had transpired, Lord Salisbury got up in Parliament, or in the House of Lords, I should say, got up in the House of Lords and said, "Look, we still want to redevelop Cyprus." So that feeds into the narrative that we don't want to admit that we were wrong, but we're not going to do it now and that we're going to focus our attention on using local funds, uh, local revenues to build a, a road infrastructure and to, to, to clear the marshes and make it safe. And again, even with, with these things um, that were absolutely necessary, they refused to use imperial funds. It would be coming from the Cypriot revenues, which of course were under strain because they promised that they would pay the Sultan a tribute. So clearly they were not interested in investing imperial funds in Cyprus. So I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here, and it seems like oh. you alluded to this already. In 1912, you, you point out there's an article in the Times which writes, Cyprus has every opportunity to develop. It, uh, to develop. it 
has even the necessary money, but the British government seizes it and hangs this tribute like a millstone around the yes. island's neck. Is this what this millstone is alluding to? Everything that you just discussed? Yes. Even yes, in 1912, absolutely. after all these, we're talking decades now, nothing's changed. Yes, nothing has changed. The bizarre thing is that the tribute continued into the late 1920s, even when the Ottoman Empire ceased to exist. And, and that's because for the British, they kept the tribute. They never gave it to the Ottomans because, <laughs> yes, yeah. because they, they decided to um, they decided to classify it as Ottoman funds that would go to the British in lieu of the Ottoman Crimean war loan that the Ottomans had uh, stopped repaying. And when they had, you know, signed up to that loan in, in, in the 18, uh, in, in, you know, during the time of the Crimean War, if the Ottomans uh, stopped paying it, it would fall on British and, and indeed French, because it was a joint loan. Uh, it, would, it was jointly guaranteed by the British and French. Basically, that they, the ta they, that those taxpayers would have to pay for it. But now they got out of paying it because the British used these Cypriot revenues, which were meant to go to the Ottomans, and basically they agreed to pay an average of five year of the five years prior to the occupation. The average they they agreed to pay to the Sultan, but kept it as as to pay, to repay for the loan. And that's why it kept going even after the Ottomans, the Ottoman Empire ceased to exist. Right. So that was a lot of money. That was 92,000 uh, British pounds. Uh, as time went on, uh, a very anomalous situation arose where the British had to give, as they put it, and they made it sound as if it was the fault of the Cypriots, right? But they had to give what they called a grant in aid to, to the Cypriot revenues in order to cover the budget. And often this grant in aid was 40, 50,000 pounds. So you think to yourself, what, you're, you're, hypothet you're taking 92,000 away, you're paying for this Ottoman loan that you've guaranteed using that money, and then you're saying to the Cypriots, it's your fault, and we're giving you 50 of ours to make up for your budget deficit. But if, right. you're, not giving, if you're not taking the 92, then you wouldn't have had to have given the 50 and you would have had 30 40,000 in your pocket to redevelop the place when do they start really seriously considering investing in infrastructure well so this happens so when lord salisbury comes to power uh, in the mid 1890s he comes to power with the support of the liberal unionists who are led by joseph chamberlain who split from the liberal party as a result of Irish policy, and, and Chamberlain becomes colonial secretary. And he embarks upon a very, you know, a sort of visionary development in, very, of, you know, in various parts of the British Empire, particularly ones that he considers were neglected. Uh, the West Indies is, is, an, is an example, and Cyprus is another. And the way they do this is through granting these governments, Cypriot colonial government, a loan. So it's not actually, here's the money, invest, um, you know, in this infrastructure. And basically what transpires in, the, so in the first years of the 20th century is a, is a, is a redevelopment of Farmagusta Harbour, a very moderate redevelopment along, along the lines, I suppose, of that original study. I mean, there were other studies done 
incidentally. And then, I mean, it, was, it wasn't it was still fit for a naval base, put it that way. They then they also built a railway between Famagusta and Nicosia and extended it through into the mining areas. And the third thing is that they invested in the construction of reservoirs, hoping that this would expand agricultural production. Now, prior to these redevelopments, the British had invested local revenues in building a road infrastructure, which Samuel Brown, as I mentioned him earlier, was partly uh, responsible for, but continued after he left. They also made moderate changes to uh, the Limassol and Larnaca ports, to the ports there. Uh, but they're open, you know, they could never be a they could never be protected. And also Kirinya, which was a sort of which was which is protected, but but it's quite small. I mean, it's very it's small, small, right? It's very, yeah, it's very small. small, very quaint, lovely place, but you know, could never be a naval base. Um, but they did spend some money there, and and other funds were spent on you know, like I said before, dredging marshes, planting trees. You know, we would call this moderate development, but nothing substantial until the first years of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. I want to shift gears a little bit and, and go back to the uh, late 19th century here and just talk about uh, Greek and Turkish relations. How would you characterize Greek and Turkish relations in the 19th century? I mean, it, it, it changes a little bit when with the British arrival goes on. However, I mean, the best way to understand this is, is I think, more along a, a sort of understanding of class and how society was, was really structured because the, the vast majority of the population were peasants and rural labourers and they had more in common with each other, whether they were Christian or Muslim, than they did with their, you know, the, 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 the small growing middle class and the elites who were essentially, uh, from, from a, from a you know, Christian point of view, you know, around the church and, and, and also lay people who were connected to the church. So they had more in common with, you know, their Muslim, <clears throat> I would call them Muslim co-rulers, really, because the church was, was extraordinarily powerful. So as time goes on, what seems to initially crack is not the relations between Christian and Muslim peasants and, and you know, whatever, rural labourers. That seems to continue on under the British period. But what cracks first, certainly, is the relations at the other end of it with the fact that the British insert themselves in and there is now three, uh, three groups there, so to speak, at the elite level with a growing middle class as well. And the church wants things to continue on as they did under the Ottomans, but the British don't want that. And they introduce a legislative council in which there is a um, representation, um, elections and so forth based upon population ratios. And basically the church loses its authority and then needs to work out, well, how do we regain this authority? The, the, the ordinary population on, on one level is quite happy about the fact that the church is no longer 
collecting taxes on behalf of the government, for instance, or enforcing government policies that they're not happy about. But also, they're not entirely happy about the British about British rule. For instance, they're, they're, the, the British are even more scrupulous in connection with co collecting taxes. They're not particularly interested in, in waiving taxes when things are not going so good. Although one example was in the 18, in late 1880s, there was a famine going through the, the Garpas Peninsula. And it was very fortunate for Cyprus that the High Commissioner adopted what I would argue is you know, a different policy, for instance, to what was adopted only 10 years earlier, about 12 years earlier in, in India, which was which had led to a, a millions dying in India. Uh, and he adopted a policy in Cyprus where he did, I suppose, adopt a more paternalistic position and helped out the Garpas Peninsula get through that famine. You know, I was also really surprised to learn about the rise of social banditry uh, at this yes. time. And it's sort of like a Robin Hood. You know, the bandit was idealized by the community and even protected by them. What what precipitates this? And um, I mean, what, what are the typical types of crimes we're talking about? Is it just pretty much theft? And can you <laughs> elaborate a little bit on this? Absolutely. I mean, I think this reflects the breakdown in the, you know, the society when the church loses its authority, society says, we're happy about that. And, but there isn't anything really to replace it. And um, the British don't replace it themselves, um, really. They don't really replace that. So there is a sort of breakdown in order between the state and the people, which had previously been held together by the Ottoman and Christian leadership pretty much largely through fear. And once that goes, there is a breakdown in order. And the British are sort of, at by this point, they're not, Cyprus is a backwater. So this, this allows for the development of this banditry, as you put it, which, which becomes um, mythologized in a way. In the same way as you say, like a Robin Hood, or in or in Australia, we have what's we have someone known as Ned Kelly, who was eventually um, executed. But you know, has this uh, Ned Kelly? Around. He's the one who had the uh, the suit of armor that he created, right? That's right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do. Man. I do know. Uh, I do know of him. Yeah. So these these you know the the Hassan Bulya in Cyprus and others have that sort of place in Cypriot folklore and local history for standing up to authority and standing up to the government and standing up to the elites who were holding the people to ransom either because of heavy taxation or because of usury. That's the other thing. Um, usury was, was, was rife where, you know, peasants and would take out, uh, you know, loans or whatever with usually with um, a very rich Greek Cypriot landowner or, or something like that. And then once they couldn't pay, they'd have to give up the land or give up whatever they had um, used the loan for. So it was, there is this aversion to authority, which, which 
which helps us to understand how this developed. Identity, it's, it's primarily shaped by, I should say was then, primarily shaped by economic, religious, and social status, uh, not the ethnic considerations that we would give today. I mean, this is a really a new dimension. Um, I think it's... Yes. It's a it's a phenomenon. This this rise of nationalism is a phenomenon that's that's sweeping through Europe in the 19th century. Now, Elena Gumna, she writes, and I'll read a quote from her. Social scientists have noted the importance of an educated national intelligentsia and the raising of ethnic consciousness and the formation of national movements. And they are teachers, journalists, philologists, lawyers, and many of them get involved in politics, or they are merchants or consular agents. They all appeared at more or less the same time. They came from the upper classes, acquired their education abroad, and were influenced by the ideologies of their time. Uh, end quote. Is this a top-down nationalism from above that's happening in Cyprus, coming from a new bourgeoisie, this um, rediscovery, if I can use that word, of um, their ethnic identity? Yes, it is. Absolutely. I think that it is. And what you've described there fits hand and glove into what happened in Cyprus, really. I mean, there, it, there was a, it was a period of transition. It didn't happen either quickly uh, or, you know, it certainly didn't happen overnight. It happened over a series of many decades and it didn't, you know, it didn't go from, you know, a few people to many believing in this. I think that the rise of the bourgeoisie um, and eventually it, it, the way that it, have influences the church and uses the church is, I suppose, the re, how the church eventually overcomes its reduced power under the British system and the way that it positions itself to reestablish that authority through nationalism. Uh, and, you know, the Archbishop uh, Sophronius, who was Archbishop for 10 or so years under the Ottomans and then for 22 years under the British, you know, one of the longest serving Archbishops of Cyprus, he could never understand the nationalism. It was alien and foreign to him. He thought it contradicted Greek, Greek Orthodoxy or, or Eastern Orthodoxy. He also thought that it would damage relations with with the Muslim community, which he which he also acknowledged. He did, when forced, he did say that, you know, if the British are going to leave, because there were instances of, you know, rumors that the British would leave Cyprus, you know, when those when that things when those occasions did happen, he would say, look, if you're gonna leave, then we would like to be united to Greece because the majority of the population are Orthodox Christians. But that wasn't his you know, his pre preference. He never actively campaigned for the union of Cyprus with Greece. However, um, after his death in 1900, there is a, a schism between a bishop who broadly adheres to the Sophronius line, although he's sort of forced to give some more stronger, I would say, support to union with Greece uh, against a, a very strongly uh, nationalistic pro-enosis bishop. And this, this schism lasts for almost a decade, for, for almost the, the, all of the first 10 years of, uh, of the first 10 years of the 20th century. And eventually it's quite telling how a high, the high commissioner 
uh, on, in that instance, uh, a philhellene paves the way for the nationalist to come to come to the basically to power as archbishop. However, this is all about trying to regain the authority of the church, which the British had um, diminished quite substantially, and to 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 regain uh, in a different way, of course. The position of the church, um, it, the difference being that it's it's now trying to regain their control as a as a in opposition to the to the imperial authorities and colonial government that's in that's in power. Whereas under the Ottomans they did it in cooperation, and the only avenue that they have is is this growing nationalism that they can see in Crete. In more broadly, Greece. In the 19th century, you know, Greek identity is is essentially rediscovered. It's very interesting to hear that Greeks, modern day Greeks, wouldn't have referred to themselves as Greeks. They would have called themselves right. Romans, right? They would have called yes. them their language Romaica, Romaic. It's it's very fascinating, especially if you're listening to that for the first time, just to wrap your head around that. That That's right. they are Romans, <laughs> you know. That's and right. Anyway, that that rediscovery of of identity of ethnic consciousness that happens in Greece happens in Cyprus. But there's one thing that you that you point out in your work. Now you note the special role that the British had in unwittingly spreading irredentism. In fact, yes. you write. Quote, so when the British applied modernist principles, civil and secular institutions and ethnic and racial identification, the existing structures collapsed. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah. So by applying modernist principles, even in even in even in the sort of limited way that they did, they the, the, the previous religiously based identity structures began to crack and although they don't crack immediately um they 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 begin to like i said crack and essentially we see um although the british don't officially refer to greeks and turks they refer to actually they refer to mohammedans and non-mohammedans which is a very old term for muslims so Muslims or non-Muslims, I mean, they unofficially refer to Greeks and Turks in their correspondence, often often doing that. But basically, for the British, there, there were sort of two perceptions of Cyprus. There was the there was the immediate visual perception of those in the island who could see that Cyprus wasn't wasn't was its own thing. It wasn't Greek. It wasn't Turkish. It was a mixed population of Christians and Muslims who essentially the bulk of the population did not identify as Greeks or Turks. Um, and they simply considered Cyprus their homeland uh, and, and you know, make of that what you will. But then there's the perception emanating from the imperial centre and, and, and sometimes from administrators in the island who had a classical education and, and, and that revolved, of course, around um, ancient Greece and an understanding of ancient Greece as a unitary a unitary state, which of course it, it wasn't, but then of course that idea, so-called glories of ancient Greece, influences the Enlightenment and nationalism, 
uh, in a broader European context. So, for instance, you know, the, the, the Cypriots are given a constitution in 1882 that, that actually had a local majority uh, of, you know, elected members. And, you know, for instance, Malta, which had been part of the British Empire since Napoleonic Wars ended, was, didn't have such a constitution. Another example was when the High Commissioner suggested that English should be taught in schools alongside the local languages, mind you, not to replace them, but alongside them. The uh, colonial secretary back in London said, well, why do they need to be taught English when Greek is a European language? So, you know, they made some profound mistakes based upon their preconceptions that had ramifications because they they didn't uh, have any um, I wouldn't say control, but but really they didn't have any didn't have a great deal of influence and input in the education system as teachers were brought in from Greece and and the Ottoman Empire later on Turkey, and they could teach uh, you know the history of Greece and the history of the Ottoman Empire and later on Republican Turkey. In 1902, uh, Churchill famously arrives in Cyprus and he's met with Greece's colors and shouts for analyses. Yes. So uh, it's it's beginning to bubble. Yeah. How, how was this received by, by Churchill and the British? I mean, they must have had their finger on the pulse by then. Did this yeah. rising wave of uh, national consciousness worry the, the yes. British at all? So this was in 1907 when Churchill... 1907, visited. sorry. Yeah, and he visits, he's part of the Liberal government, um, and he visits the island. Uh, he he basically acknowledges the sentiment, but he also acknowledges that the, that the British need to respect Muslim sensibilities as well. The British were aware, however, that, you know, the welcome that he received was quite well orchestrated by the nationalist leaders. You know, people are told to put these banners up and hoist these flags and whatever, and they do it to get, you know, they get paid. For example, in I think 19, I'm thinking 1912 or 13, the High Commissioner uh, Hamilton Gould Adams, I've just published an article, a co-authored article in the Journal of Imperial and Commonwealth History on Hamilton Gould Adams, um, partly looking at his time in Cyprus. And he's touring, he goes on a tour and he basically has identified the places that he's going to stop in. And he he realizes that where, whenever he stopped at a place that he had said he would stop, they greeted him with, you know, banners and enosis and so forth. But then when he took a detour and went to another village, he, he wasn't confronted with any such sentiment. So he, he basically put this down to a well-orchestrated nationalist campaign, whether that's whether that's true or not. I suppose partly true, partly untrue, but um, there's no doubt that the sentiment was being engineered, I suppose, from above, and people were going along with it in some instances, but in others they were indifferent still. Uh, I mm -hmm. mean, the fact that so many Cypriots served in the British Armed Forces in World War One, basically because of the wages that were being offered, um, I suppose, in my view, signals a sort of 
loyalty to to the British, whereas the Greeks who were trying to recruit in Cyprus couldn't couldn't re, couldn't do that. And uh, even in the Greco-Turkish War that followed the First World War, very few Cypriots are serving in Greek colours. Kumna actually writes something else. She says, um, with the rise of nationalist elites, politics in Cyprus witnesses a significant change. The new bourgeoisie becomes responsible for the dissemination of ideology of nationalism. What's, and maybe this is more of a personal question, what do you think is this mass appeal? Why all of a sudden is this so, for lack of a better word, so appealing? I mean, traditionally, as we said, it's typically class that defines this, that defines um, the individual. Uh, it's your village, really. Yes. <laughs> you know, at some point, nationalism is not is no longer top down. I think at some point, it, it, it comes from the bottom. It comes from um, the villages. It really takes root, if I could use that oh, metaphor. Absolutely. And yeah, absolutely, it does. I mean, at, at this point in time, if we're talking about the time around, I suppose, the First World War and the time just before that, what's happening is that play, different places, and Cyprus included, are beginning to wonder about who they are and where they've come from. And in Cyprus, it's very difficult to present a Cypriot identity because there's there's no history books there's there's no encouragement in the education system to understand Cyprus's past the you know I suppose if we go back the Sophronius line that you know Christians and Muslims get along well here and we we live to and live together and so forth that's beginning to that's still there however um, people don't see that as as an identity thing and they begin to correlate religious affiliation with with ethnicity and the combination of that with the creation and existence of modern Greek state and the conflicts that it has uh, had with the Ottoman Empire draws particularly the bourgeoisie towards a Greek nationalist orientation to explain who they are. And that feeds into also the church's dilemma of, of having lost power and there being a, 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 a vacuum. And basically this is the attraction that the only way that they can um, identify themselves is in opposition to, first of all, the British and in opposition to the Muslim community by identifying with Greece. And the attraction is by this point in time that that well and truly Europe considers ancient Greece to be part of, you know, the foundational story of Europe, basically. This was, um, a, as always, great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I really appreciate your time. I do hope that we can have a second conversation, of course. Um, Absolutely. I will be in touch. Brilliant. Sounds good. Right. Take care. Have a great you night. You too. All right. Thank you. Take care. Enjoy the day. Bye-bye. Bye.